You wanna finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economowakas in the house. Okay, welcome to another episode of The New Look, where we are going to be taking a new look at the Supreme Court and a variety of other issues with Ilya Shapiro. Ilya, what's going on? Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. This is uh, only my, uh, I think, fifth or sixth uh, Zoom, Skype, whatever remote call uh, today, so it's a light day. That's right. Have you? Is this where you spent most of your time? Where, where, where are you broadcasting from right now? My, my home in Falls Church, Virginia. It's the, the last stop uh, off the interstate inside the Beltway in uh, Metropolitan Washington, D.C. Uh, and yeah, this is where the magic happens. I got, got my bookshelves on this side. I got my bookshelves and my pet shark on the other side. Is that um, a? Are those? Um, your audio quality is very good, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, are those I just knocked over? I just knocked over my can of Coke. So uh, if you'll excuse well, me, I need to get some paper towels and things as I was rotating my my uh, my computer. It's all staying in. Okay, hold on a sec. My comment on books on your bookshelf. Okay, so Ilya has what appears to be a copy of Whitaker Chambers' Witness, which I also have on my bookshelf behind me. He has a Ronald Reagan book. I don't know which one it is. I can't tell from the cover. Um, he has a Dwight. All right. This is literally the first time this has happened in uh, you know six I've months pandemic. So, Ilya, I've been commenting on your bookshelf, and I I noticed you have a a copy of Witness by Whitaker Chambers, as do I behind me. Uh, you have a an Eisenhower bobblehead. Uh, is that Eisenhower or who is that? That's Eisenhower. Okay. I have a variety of Eisenhower paraphernalia behind me. I didn't know which Reagan book that was. Um, uh, that is the Dinesh D'Souza book. I think uh, there's others There's others behind it. Uh, this is... Favorite book of all time? Usually we do get to this at the end of the podcast, but... I, I, I like... This was a good one. P.J. O'Rourke, my favorite client. How the hell did this happen? P.J. was my client uh, on, on a few of uh, Cato's funny briefs. Uh, if you look it up, uh, but uh, he didn't write a single comma, but he joined them because they make fun of stupid uh, government regulations and censorship and and things like that. And I told PJ that uh, you know he's an H.L. Mencken fellow with the Cato Institute where I work, and I told him that he's worth every penny we pay him. It's an honorary position, and he says that's great, Ilya. You're worth every penny as a lawyer that I pay. I'm pro bono counsel, so you know we're even. <laughs> so when Ilya's not. Um, uh, deliberately spilling coca-cola on copies of the constitution on his desk he's commenting on the constitution as a distinguished scholar and director of the robert a levy center uh, for constitutional studies at the cato institute he publishes the cato supreme court review he's done a lot of other things uh, and most recently published a book called supreme disorder judicial nominations and the politics of america's highest court but before we get into that, Ilya, let's start with where where are you from? Where does this journey begin? Sure. Um, I was uh, born in Moscow, Russia, or Moscow, USSR. Uh, my family fled in uh, in '81. We were able to to get out, um, 
and How old ended were you up, in 81? I, I turned four during the immigration process in Italy. So the, the way it worked for uh, Jewish emigres at the time was if you're going straight to Israel, you went straight to Israel after a uh, Red Cross health inspection in Vienna. Otherwise, you went to Rome where there was temporary refugee housing and you waited for a visa from a Western country. And we got that from Canada after about four months. And so uh, I grew up uh, in a small town in Ontario, uh, about an hour and a half from Toronto. And um, we were the only Jewish family in the town. There was one Chinese family, one um, uh, Indian family. So guess whose kids won all of the academic awards, uh, things like that. Luckily, I was also into sports, so I didn't get beat up. But anyway, uh, it was a it was a very, you know, uh, classic Midwestern upbringing, uh, you know, riding bikes everywhere and Boy Scouts and sports and, and all the rest of it. And then we moved to Toronto when I started high school. I went to a very good school uh, there and then went to Princeton, our alma mater. In fact, uh, later this afternoon, my, my last Zoom call will be uh, for the uh, Princeton chapter of the Federalist Society. I'm doing a thing on freedom of speech for them. Uh, and then... Uh, Didn't you just criticize the... Uh the, the president of Princeton? Yeah, I was very disappointed. Chris Eisberger, the uh, Gruber, the current president of Princeton, has generally been very good, kind of an old school liberal approach to all this uh, great awakening and whatnot. But uh, uh, I don't know if you got this email. It was an all alumni email that he sent out last week, uh, basically bending the knee to the demands of the woke mobs. And um, very unfortunate. And uh, a, a math professor at Princeton wrote a piece in Newsweek today uh, excoriating him for basically bringing in the thought police and the re-education camps from his native Romania. Uh, and I agreed with that. A, a, a colleague and I are actually, a, a, another Princeton alum, are, are working on a letter, a private letter to send to President Eisgruber because this is really, it's not even that I'm mad, I'm just sad. Uh, okay, so let's, before we get into excoriating our alma mater, uh, <laughs> and I didn't get that email, I must not be on the email list. I get the PAW, the Princeton Alumni Weekly, and yeah, every yeah. issue has like, uh, someone who's gone into politics and it's always like, you know, bravely running for city council here or there. And I've literally, I've never been contacted for an interview. There, I don't there's know if another, I like, there's another political cover. I just got one today. It's someone from a class of 06. I haven't opened it up of what she's running for or what she's doing, but yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I don't know if any Republican has been contacted. Uh, okay. Do you have memories of Moscow? I mean, do, what is it in your mind? Is it a what? What is it so like? So I've been, I've been back twice. I was back in '98 to do thesis research uh, when I was at Princeton, and then in '09 for uh, the thesis research was about a month. It was fascinating, and that was when the uh, the the currency collapsed and the debt default in the summer of '98. Uh, fascinating place to be running around as a 21 year old talking to constitutional experts and politicians and whatnot. Anyway, uh, and then I was back in '09 on a Jewish young professionals trip. Um, so I've sort of backfilled memories with my adult uh, experiences, but yeah, I did visit the uh, communal, what was the communal apartment where I spent my first uh, three, nearly four years, uh, just to make clear, in, in Moscow at the time, running out of housing, housing shortage, and so a lot of people shared their apartment spaces. So we had a one bedroom where the bedroom was occupied by a nice old lady who was not a member of our family, and. Uh, my parents and I, I'm an only child, as are most uh, Soviets of the of my generation, uh, shared, uh, slept in the in the living room, and then we shared the kitchen and, and bathroom. And so I visited that place. It had been privatized, of course, and uh, a bachelor was living there. It was perfectly fine bachelor quarters, but I can't imagine, you know, raising a family. Wow. So most Soviets of that generation only had one child because of economic constraints or like deliberate government policy? 
I know, absolutely. It, it, there was no one-child policy like in China. It was economic yeah. constraints. It was, you know, very hard, very tough. You know, my parents were saints. They, you know, stood in lines to get whatever morsel of nu- nutritious food came in from wherever that particular day. I mean, it's um, it's tough. And they were, you know, they were educated folks. My mom has a PhD, and my dad's an engineer, and um, but that's why they got me out. My dad had long wanted to leave. You know, he had been exiled as a kid uh, under Stalin when his his father was arrested for being educated and Jewish and, and things like that, enemy of the people. And so he didn't get to go back to Moscow uh, until he started college uh, in the thaw after Khrushchev. Um, but he, you know, obviously hated the regime, wanted to get out. And it wasn't until I was born that my mom was like, yeah, we, we, we can't have, we can't raise this, uh, this boy here. So, so, you know, I think, I think my, my dad, my mom passed when I was in college, but my, my dad's still in Toronto and uh, I talk to him almost every day, and yeah, just uh, I think about how how different my life would be if if they hadn't made that call. Well, the tragedy though is you they go through all this trouble, um, you know, taking you away from an evil communist regime only to trap you in another in Canada. <laughs> well, you know, we was... we just took a wrong turn at the St. Lawrence Seaway, you know, uh, and I liked immigrating so much I had to do it another time. But, you know, the American immigration system is so screwed up that it wasn't until 10 years ago that I finally got my green card five years ago that I became a citizen. And, and you know, Mike, it's it's uh, like most immigrants. I do a job that most native born Americans won't. And that's defending the Constitution. <laughs> touche, sir. Touche. OK, so but I guess this leads to a thought of because of your family's unique experience, did you. I mean, what drew you to studying the U.S. Constitution? Was it a sense of, you know, maybe maybe the fact that you kind of initially came at America from abroad gave you a, a unique perspective on it and appreciation for it? When did that first kind of uh, manifest itself? Yeah, I, I, I do think I have the zealotry of a convert uh, in a sense. Um, you know, the only you know, my parents, as I said, were Soviet trained engineers. So I was always good at math and, and that. But when it became clear that I was more interested in history and writing and what have you, my parents were like, all right, we came to this country so you could choose what you could do. You know, we didn't have so many opportunities, but that's great. But you have to understand, we can't help you with your homework anymore. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I got this. Uh, But yeah, I was just, you know, I was drawn, you know, my parents taught me that communism was bad and I basically took it from there. And in terms of the U.S. versus Canada, I always, from an early age, preferred, it sounds hokey perhaps, but I preferred life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to peace, order, and good government. You know the relative mottos uh, of the country, uh, countries, and uh, I knew I think early on I wanted to go to law school. After Princeton, I, I did a, a grad school in London at the LSE, and then uh, and then law school at the University of Chicago. Uh, and Were you one uh, of these like smart Rhodes Scholar kids or something? Or I was, was not a Rhodes Scholar, although I, you know the Canadian Rhodes is relatively easier to get than the American Rhodes, so maybe I should have tried, but. Uh, I got I got a couple of other scholarships that I cobbled together and spent my year uh, traveling around Europe and playing rugby and going to theater and and, and things like that. Um, but uh, I, I always knew I wanted to go to law school. I always, I always had this kind of comparative constitutional bent interest in political institutions and just um, really got taken with with constitutional structure. And, you know, when I, I clerked for a, a federal uh, circuit judge in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, and then came to D.C. I've been in the D.C. area for uh, 16 years now. Um, and, you know, I was kind of miserable in big law firms trying to write on the side and got this opportunity to join Cato. It'll be 13 years uh, tomorrow, in fact, since I've been at Cato. Uh, and uh, away we went. And it's just, you know, the, the promise of this country, the 
the the the way that the, the Madisonian genius uh, of the way that the, the checks and balances and separation of powers and federalism, which you know has been observed uh, largely in the breach in the last 80 years or so, but that's that's getting into my book a little bit. Um, but I was always just you know man's last best hope for freedom. The speeches of Ronald Reagan, you know, I was a precocious uh, you know eight, nine, ten, twelve year old listening to all that stuff. Just couldn't get enough. Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall, uh, and the wall came down. And um, yeah, so I, the, 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 the background uh, the, that I came from certainly influenced my wanting to contribute to uh, making or keeping uh, this, this country free. So presumably, uh, just as there were millions trapped on the wrong side of that wall, there are millions of, of miserable uh, uh, law school grads trapped at, at soulless law firms right now. And I have not met someone who enjoys working. Uh, how did you what advice would you give to them? How did you make that decision to presumably forego, you know, a partner track and kind of go on this different think tank writing track? And, and how did you wind up working in Iraq uh, as yeah. part of that transition? Yeah. Um, well, I actually wasn't that good an associate. So maybe I wouldn't have made it through the partner track, uh, you know, tending to the laborious minutiae when I wanted to think big thoughts and, uh, you know, work on, you know, you know, maybe I should have gone to a different kind of firm to do more white call, white, white uh, shoe uh, appellate litigation or something. But then you never built have... enough hours. You felt. Yeah, guilty. that too. That too, yeah. I, I suppose. But and, you know, the thing is, I, I would just go home. And even when I was like finished supervising document review or whatever it was at midnight, 1 a.m., and I'd have to like write an op ed or a blog post or something. And this is in the early days of online publication in like 04, 05, 06. And um you know, I always thought I wanted a career that had a, a blend of public sector, private sector, nonprofit teaching, what have you. And this opportunity presented itself because I'm building up a, a clip file of you know, publications in various in various places uh, and the attending think tank lectures, Capitol Hill cocktail parties, trying to maintain uh, knowledge and connections in the policy and political worlds. And I went to a lecture, a Bradley lecture at, at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, asked a question. I always tell my interns, you know, make sure you, when you go to these things, you ask questions, assuming it's an intelligent question. That line about how there are no dumb questions is absolutely wrong. But anyway, I asked a good one. And then uh, Roger Pallon, the founder of Cato's Constitutional Studies Center, came up to me at the wine and cheese afterwards and said, hey, uh, that was a good question. I think I recognize your name from somewhere. Why don't you send me your like resume or what have you? And uh, I... Uh, uh, it had only been a year since I changed firms. So I wasn't necessarily looking for a new job, but he had me over for lunch for a three hour long discussion of political philosophy and legal theory. And away we went, uh, except I had already made arrangements to go to Iraq, as you as you mentioned, for a few months because I had met Dave Petraeus at a Princeton alumni conference on rule of law development. Um, and I, you know, I came up to him after this, uh, after he gave a talk. This is before he got his definitely before he got his fourth, maybe even before he got his third star while he was working on the counterintelligence manual at Leavenworth. And uh, I said, look, uh, I, I didn't even have a green card at the time. I was on a NAFTA visa. So I'm like, look, with my immigration status, I can't go work for the CIA. I can't go work for you. You know, what can I do? I want to, I'm, I'm interested in this, you know, institution pro building process. And he's like, I don't know, let's see what we can do. And um, long story short, they found a way to get me there unpaid but I had cleverly negotiated with my law firm to continue my associate salary while I was in Iraq because they thought it would be good for their government contract uh, practice and whatever else. But then I got this offer to join Cato. And so halfway through my time uh, living in a, in a trailer in the, in the green zone uh, uh, beside Saddam's palace, 
I gave my notice by email to the managing partner of the firm and came back, uh, uh, cleaned out my office in a way we want. But in, in Iraq, I was basically uh, uh, an aide uh, uh plenipotentiary, if you will, of the staff judge advocate, the, the head uh, JAG, uh, Mark Martins, who's now for a while been the head prosecutor at uh, Guantanamo. Remarkable individual, you know, top of his class at West Point, Rhodes Scholar, Harvard Law. I mean, just just brilliant individual. And I, I would do everything from like reading biographies of Saddam to try to get insight into you know, political processes or, or, or cults of the individual to uh, uh, writing memos on the Iraqi criminal code to coordinating uh, PowerPoint presentations between uh, different lawyers working in the rule of law space. It was really it was really fascinating. And of course, I wasn't eligible for any security clearance. Canadians weren't part of the uh, of the uh, of the allied uh, forces there. And so I would give some presentation and Colonel Martins would say, oh, that, you did a good job with that. Now, now forget anything about that presentation that you just gave. So it'll suddenly become classified for no yeah. reason. Uh, right. Well, Petraeus, this was his, I think, particular genius, a willingness and ability to reach outside or down through the bureaucracy to recruit talent wherever he found it, particularly through various alumni networks. Um, wait, just to quickly go back before we get into your book. So you went to University of Chicago for law school. I sort of view, and without knowing much about it, University of Chicago, both law school and undergrad, is occupying, like being this unique island of um, common sense and small l liberal thought in an otherwise uh, crazy sea of wokeness and big L liberal and big W woke thought. Am I correct in that suspicion? I think that's right, although they're they're bending as well. I mean, not really? as much as some of these other places, but um, Chicago was the place that originated the the free speech. Um, um, I don't know what, what you call it, but the, the the Chicago statement on the freedom of speech, which was adopted actually uh, by Princeton. Maybe they'll now be going uh, back from that, but uh, not all schools did. And certainly at the law school, there was a lot of intellectual freedom and a lot of intellectual diversity. Less of that. Uh, after Elena Kagan, now justice, of course, but when she was dean of Harvard, would poach a lot of conservatives from Chicago because she liked intellectual diversity. And that was one of the ways in which she was an excellent dean of, of Harvard Law School. Um, but uh, yeah, Chicago is an interesting place. It's definitely you know, the, the unofficial motto is where fun comes to die or hell does freeze over. I mean, it's a there's a lot of work. It's a nose to the grindstone, particularly uh, for the undergrads relative to their their peer institutions. But uh, yeah, I, I found the law school a fulfilling place. And particularly my third year when I moved up north and lived uh, right next to Wrigley Field, between Wrigley Field and the lake, uh, really enjoyed it and uh, made a lot of good friends, uh, made a lot of intellectual connections. Um, and uh, I, th I think that education has, has served me well as kind of uh, to, to polish off what I got uh, at Princeton and in London. So final life question before moving on to serious matters. So as a Soviet exile turned Canadian turned Chicago in turned DC in, what are your sports allegiances? <laughs> yeah, this is somewhat controversial. So for, for hockey, that's, you got to talk about hockey first, of course. Uh, it's both the Leafs that I grew up with and the Washington Capitals, where I've been a season ticket holder for 12 years. Well, how can this be? How can you be a sports bigamist? This is anathema. Well, you know, I just told you my story. Uh, you know, I grew up with, with hockey. I actually grew up cheering for Wayne Gretzky and his Edmonton Oilers when the Leafs were terrible. And so that's why my football team became the Denver Broncos, because they shared the same colors as the Edmonton Oilers randomly. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've held allegiance to both the, the, the Capitals and the Leafs because, you know, they're not rivals. In fact, until three years ago, they'd never met in the playoffs. But that first meeting in the playoffs, that was a true dilemma. In fact, I went to uh, the arena here in D.C. and I call I, I, I uh, safety pinned together two halves of my jerseys for the Leafs and the Caps. Uh, a reporter for the Washington Post took a picture of me entering the arena and was like tweeted it out saying, what, you know, what fresh hell is this? That got picked up by the NBC on NHL. I was like interviewed at the post game show and eventually made the not too many think tank scholars can say this, made the front page of the sports section of the Washington Post, or at least my jersey did uh, th this whole story about how, you know, I moved to D.C., met a girl, settled down. And, and here we are. And uh, people ask, so who did you end up cheering for in that series? And I said, the home team. So. So first of all, I will allow the Broncos thing because I have very strong thoughts on this. I think your sports allegiances should generally be inherited or geographically determined. But in cases like I imagine where you were in Canada, where you yeah, don't Toronto have doesn't a have an NFL, NFL team. team, you are allowed and, and, to. And, and the Bills were losing four Super Bowls in a row. Yeah. So there's no way I was going to go for that. Exactly. Uh, and in ba in baseball, you know, surprisingly enough, I was exposed to Fenway Park at a formative age, so I became a, a Red Sox fan. Now, again, living in D.C., I, I feel I can afford to be a Nationals and a Red Sox as they're opposite leagues, but, you know. Uh, quickly, you said a phrase, what fresh hell is this? The only other time I've heard that phrase is in a, uh, a, a Western set in Australia called the Proposition. What does that phrase come from, or is that just something that is a thing? Uh, I don't know. I'm an autodidact. I pick up all, all sorts of things, just like my like three seersucker suits that I own. And I start, you know, if you were from uh, Mississippi, not Wisconsin, I'd be in a heavy draw right now. I just, you know, adapt the cultural chameleon stuff. OK, so uh, owing in no small part to that very unique life experience, uh, Ilya has written a ton. I would encourage you to, to go on Cato's website to get a flavor for it. But most recently published a book called uh, Supreme Disorder. And I'm going to read the second part of that title, uh, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Um, you know, I don't really know where to begin. Maybe maybe begin at the end with with Kavanaugh, because I think that's probably most vivid in everyone's mind. I mean, obviously, we saw a very brutal, nationally divisive confirmation hearing. Maybe if you would just kind of situate that within the overall evolution of, of confirmations and, and what it says about the court. Sure. Um, or do start somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, Kavanaugh, by the way, Trump apparently just put out his SCOTUS list. So I'm going to, as soon as we finish talking, I'm going to have to analyze what's, what's going on with that. Are you uh, on the list? Uh, I don't think so. Otherwise I would be getting other kinds of media queries, but um so, you know, Kavanaugh didn't didn't happen out of um, uh, out of out of thin air. Uh, this was kind of the latest uh, escalation in a series of uh, ratcheting up of tensions over the Supreme Court. Um, you know, there's some people that uh, feel that none of the Republican appointed justices are legitimate. Uh, Roberts and Alito, because Bush, uh, you know, didn't really win the election in 2000. Uh, Thomas, because of, of his earlier you know, scandal of his hearing in, in 91, and then uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, because uh, Trump similarly is, is illegitimate, and also Merrick Garland was blocked and all that. So, you know, there have been escalations going back uh, decades. Uh, it doesn't really matter who started it, who's more to blame, but it's, um, you know, this battle for the courts uh, happens because what the courts do matter. And so 
we have the culmination of this trend where we have divergent interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preferences at a time when um, the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been perhaps ever, at least since the Civil War. Uh, and given that there's only a finite number of seats, even if you expand the court to whatever, there's still a finite number of seats, uh, you're going to be have brought battles uh, over this thing. And so, um, you know, senators are responding to the incentives that they face and nominees are responding to the incentives that they face. Uh, but ultimately, and, and this goes back historically, this is not just the modern age, the single biggest uh, indicator of whether somebody is going to be confirmed or how easily uh, is whether the party uh, uh, that, that controls the White House, the president nom making the nomination, also controls the Senate. Historically, about 90% of unified government picks are confirmed and about 60% of, of divided government picks. And you add to that with the Merrick Garland situation, you know, the uh, if it's the last year of a presidential term, those are about 50 percent, not, you know, without separating out divided versus unified. So, um, you know, you, you get these kind of statistics and you get the political fights going back to George Washington, who had one of his nominees rejected. And it's it's no surprise that uh, we get the, the dirty kind of all hands on deck, no holds barred fights uh, over what is uh, ultimately uh, could be a deciding vote on so many important issues. But you start the book with this story about uh, John Kennedy's nomination uh, to the Supreme Court, who, and I'm going to forget the name, but was a the highest paid player in the NFL. Um, yeah, By you know, Byron yeah. White, probably the last person who's going to play in the NFL while a student at Yale Law School. <laughs> That's a safe prediction, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the point you make is that this was kind of over in an afternoon. You know, he, he got some very uh, tame questions, mostly about his football career. Uh, and then, you know, there wasn't really even a debate. And then he wa was confirmed. So I guess tease out a little bit what's changed in the intervening, um, you know, 60, 60 or so years. Is it that at that time there weren't two clearly divergent theories, legal theories for what a good uh, justice w should be? You know, originalist versus what? What's the phrase we use to lump all the left in right now? Living constitutionalists. Living constitutionalists, or or is it more just the parties are the the country's more divided and the party tactics reflect that? Maybe it's overdetermined and there's a lot of different things, but kind of tease out the difference between sure. that vignette sure. and Kavanaugh. Yeah, I mean, originalism didn't really exist. The conservative legal movement didn't really exist, and we were still only uh, 20 years from. Uh, what legal scholars call the revolution of 1937, really kind of 37 to 42 or so, when the Constitution was amended in a whole host of ways by the Supreme Court or by the FDR administration, and the, and the Supreme Court allowed them to to get away with it, expanding federal power under the, the power to regulate interstate commerce, the Commerce Clause, or the General Welfare Clause, which was meant to be a restriction of federal power to those things that are actually benefit the general as opposed to the particular or regional welfare, uh, other such things. Uh, as well as a bifurcation of our rights and, and how those rights are uh, connected textually to either the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment. Um, you have a divergence starting in the late 30s, uh, uh, early 40s, which would really uh, blossom in the Warren Court, which was the 60s and 70s, not quite yet visible in 1962, although there was some pushback to some of the desegregation orders. That was the main controversy at the time. And of course, the issue of civil rights split the Democratic Party. Uh, and so you'd have kind of cross-partisan cross, cross -partisan, 
uh, concerns, although not not for Byron White. LBJ would run into this with some of his uh, nominees and then and then Nixon beyond. Um, uh, but then really the the conservative legal movement, uh, as nascent as it was in those days, made a strategic error in replying to uh, the, the what they called the activism of the Warren or, or FDR court, not by saying your legal theories are wrong, but by saying you're activist, you should be restrained. Uh, and so we got this bizarre fight for decades over judicial modes. That is, are you being restrained enough or no, you're being activist or what have you, rather than your theory of the First Amendment is wrong, your theory of the Commerce Clause is wrong. Uh, and so it's only lately in the last 20, 25 years that in addition to kind of developing the, rig the rigorous intellectual uh, structure of originalism and textualism, which Robert Bork started, then Scalia, and then a whole bunch of scholars got, got into the act, understanding that, uh, you know, first of all, that it's not about the intention of the framers, you know, tr you know, try to figure out what James Madison had to say about violent video games or something. Uh, it's more the words on the page and what they meant when those provisions uh, were enacted. But on top of the theories, uh, the realization that it's not about restraint versus activism, not about this, quote unquote, strict construction, as Nixon talked about and conservatives talked about uh, into the 80s. Uh, it's about, OK, what is your theory? And then let's apply it. OK, because if you have a great theory, but then you're not willing to uh, go against the strike down government action or overturn precedent, then what good is your theory uh, in the first place? And so that's really the difference between a John Roberts and a Sam Alito to take, uh, you know, to the, the, the two justices appointed by George W. Bush, for example. And so you have multiple generations as the conservative legal movement uh, has developed and sharpened uh, its theory that it's really, uh, you know, gone against uh, a more loosey-goosey uh, pragmatic or evolutionary or whatever you want to call it, results-oriented or not, uh, a theory that we come from the left. But doesn't Kavanaugh represent a disconfirming case for your argument, right? In other words, it, I, it, as, it, my observation was that it almost had nothing to do with his judicial philosophy, right? And I think at one point in the book, you point out the irony is that Kavanaugh was viewed as a safe pick. That's why Trump nominated him. Yeah. So that this to me is sort of like an aberration. The fight wasn't about whether, you know, Kavanaugh, how he was going to view uh, rule on, you know, pro-life issues or Citizens United or things like that. Well, but that's why the opposition was so vehement, because Kavanaugh was a safe pick in the sense that he was in the conservative mainstream. Uh, you know, the left considers anybody who's, you know, to the right of Merrick Garland to be extreme, basically. And um, so even though, you know, if you kind of put issue by issue, compare Kavanaugh to Kennedy from the progressives perspective, you know, Kavanaugh doesn't change that much, probably on affirmative action, uh, possibly on a couple of other smaller issues. But uh, whether it's Citizens United and campaign finance for Kennedy was a leader in upholding First Amendment values. Uh, whether it's Obamacare, um, where, you know, Kennedy was read the dissent from the bench uh, going against what you know, John Roberts did, you know, a whole host of areas where, you know, it's it's, you know, not that big a shift. But he was a more solid originalist, a more you know conventional conservative, if you will. And so that is what alarmed the left. So it's it was perhaps a surprising pick. Uh, you know, a, a swamp creature like Brett Kavanaugh, double Ivy, you know, inside the beltway, uh, elite, uh, all of that. 
but uh, in a sense, um, you know, Trump likes that gold plating, particularly uh, for his judges. And more importantly, I guess, in this scenario, Don McGahn, the then White House counsel, really liked Kavanaugh for his pushback on the administrative state, which I think is going to be borne out because uh, that's a that's a major issue as well. Well, that, I think gets to the bigger issue, right, which is as much as these these fights seem more dramatic, confirmation fights seem more dramatic in the Senate. And one of the things you point out in your book, correct me if I'm wrong, is that most or at least half of American presidents from Washington on have had a nominee go down. Uh, and then John Quincy Adams had one postponed indefinitely, which I is love a great, that euphemism. Yeah. Great, great phrase. <laughs> I have. I, I have like uh, guitar and piano lessons postponed indefinitely in a variety of <laughs> projects in my house. Um, the, back then, it was more a, an insider's game, and some of the nominees w- didn't even really have judicial bona fides, whereas today it, it has become an actual judicial philosophy game, correct? Th- that's right. Politics always played a role, but often it was about your cronies or satisfying a few senators for their cronies or geographical balance, the New York seat, the Virginia seat, the Ohio seat, the Southern seat, etc. Um, but it wasn't, uh, you're right, about uh, ideologies. Sometimes there were certain issues, whether it be slavery or railroad regulation, uh, certain other progressive era tropes, uh, antitrust, un- trust busting under Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, but it wasn't kind of a, that's a conservative, that's a, uh, that's a liberal or, or what have you. That changed in the 20th century where, where ideology as such became the, the, the political factor, not just partisanship. And that's what uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his successor, William Howard Taft, referred to as, quote, the real politics. So they, you know, a number of presidents appointed both Democrats and Republicans, but, you know, they focused on what issue they really cared about, whether that's going easy on the business community, whether that's trust busting, whether that's, uh, you know, civil rights issues, pro or con, um, but regardless of, of the partisan labels. And and then as, as I said, in the modern age, as kind of uh, the different interpretive theories coalesced into clearly progressive and clearly uh, conservative or originalist, um, uh, the, we, we have the, the birth of the dynamic that we see now. But would you would you agree that sort of lurking in the back of that is the, the confirmation fights have grown more intense um, and more focused on judicial philosophy because the court itself has grown more powerful because Congress has grown less powerful and granted also via ambiguous law and, you know, granting administrative fiat to the executive branch all sorts of nonsensical legislation that the court then has an opportunity to interpret depending on their appetite for it. That's definitely a big part of the dynamic, uh, and, and I describe that that uh, in my book. So uh, Ben Sass, in his opening remarks at the Kavanaugh hearings, touched uh, on this. Um, the reason why the courts are, are, or one of the reasons why the courts uh, are so fraught, and there's a fight over them, and there's more protesters in front of the Supreme Court than in front of Congress, which is ridiculous, uh, is because Congress has been passing this these broad pieces of legislation, you know, the, the Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Act of 2020, and then the uh, administrative agencies, the cabinet departments and, and others, uh, have to flesh out and write the regulations by which we actually have to uh, abide uh, in, in our daily lives. And of course, you can't unelect bureaucrats. You can only sue them. And so all of these debates over values end up uh, in the courts in that manner, rather than having them hashed out in Congress, which is where we're supposed to decide policy differences and, and values differences and what have you. But also, the central, before you even get to that warping or skewing of power away from Congress, and yes, 
someone from Cato, I'm saying that Congress should have more power, not in the absolute, but rebalancing within the federal government. But anyway, even before you get to that rebalancing and separation of power question, you get the federalism question. That is, Washington, the federal government, is not supposed to be amassing so much power in the first place. So, of course, people from California and Texas and Wisconsin and, and uh, Virginia are going to disagree about all sorts of different issues. Well, shouldn't we then minimize the issues that are decided uh, in a one-size-fits-all uh, dynamic rather than uh, letting each state uh, uh, figure those things out? So those two dynamics uh, generally uh, do uh, accentuate the role of the court, the power of the judiciary, uh, and therefore the importance uh, of these fights. Now, some uh, controversial uh, judicial uh, opinions or, or, or involvements are unavoidable. Um, uh, abortion or Second Amendment, these things about individual rights. There's no way, you know, even if you have a properly balanced federal government and federalism is realigned, so states are uh, using more of their own sovereignty rather than Washington taking it up, there's still going to be fights over whether a state is is violating my First Amendment rights, my Fifth Amendment rights, my my Fourteenth Amendment un unenumerated rights to, to whether it's due process or privileges or means. So the court is still going to have to uh, uh, figure out uh, which rights and enforce those w w are protected by the federal constitution. But uh, the warping of federalism and separation of power certainly accentuates uh, the federal judiciary and, 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 and the Supreme Court. So let's say you, Ilya Shapiro, are a United States senator, and you're allowed to be now. Um, you're both old enough and you're an American citizen. I haven't been a citizen for, I think it's 14 years you have to Oh, be. okay. Well, when, however many years to get to you to that point. I, I'm not even quite eligible to be a representative yet. Although my, my home state of Ontario doesn't have any representation in Congress. I think we should maybe make it a state along with uh, D.C. Well, or something. I am on record supporting what I call the Wexit, which is oh, yes. the provinces in Canada that are like the Midwest of Canada, we and voted for conservatives. Yes, I, I love your I love your half baked ideas episodes with uh, Jonah Goldberg on the Remnant, who I'm hoping will invite me to talk about my book. It's been over a year. I've been on three times. I'm hoping to make the five time club on the Remnant. But anyway, maybe you can tell Jonah that he needs to help me on. But yes, the Wexit is great. And yeah, you wouldn't want Ontario anyway. Great hockey, but they're all going to vote socialist, and we we don't want that. So whatever, however it happens, you're el you're in the Senate. A, a let's say a, a pro highly progressive president, President AOC, nominates a very progressive uh, 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 person to be the next Supreme Court justice. How do you approach that nomination? Are you of the opinion that, and let's say this person is otherwise impeccably qualified, you just happen to agree with their disagree with their judicial philosophy, right? But High integrity, impeccable credentials. You know, I don't know who the 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 example of that would be in the present day. Um, but you just—they're not an originalist, not a, a textualist. How do you, as a U.S. senator, approach that? Do you believe that you vote against someone because you disagree with their philosophy, or yes? Okay, well, there. Yes. Get off the train there. I I you know. Um... Judicial philosophy matters. Uh, it's not simply whether someone, you know, got great grades and has a sterling uh, resume. I want the Constitution interpreted as I want it interpreted, and fine, you can argue with me if I'm if I'm wrong about that. But uh, uh, I, I do not blame senators for voting against uh, judicial nominees uh, who they think uh, are bad for the rule of law or for constitutional interpretation. Now they should be honest about that and not hide behind, you know, whatever other pretextual reasons. 
but the, the right debate to have is over the correct interpretive theory. And then the voters can ultimately judge whether that senator is making the right call. But do you believe, so does that basically mean though that pre-nuclear option, no one could get confirmed absent a supermajority in the Senate? I suppose you, I suppose you have to make some some compromises at a certain point, but uh, um, you know different senators, I guess, face uh, face different uh, electoral incentives. Um, yeah, you didn't tell me in this hypothetical whether I'm in a you know uh, safely to get reelected or whether I need some crossover appeal or or what have you. But uh, I mean that that's always a a consideration. But I, I do think judicial philosophy is absolutely a valid consideration. What about the Merrick Garland rule? Was that did McConnell take the the right approach? Did, and has that set a standard that we're now going to have to live by for time immemorial? Well, historically, the the last time that uh, someone was confirmed uh, by a Senate of an opposing party to the president to a vacancy that arose during a presidential election year was 1888. Uh, it just doesn't it doesn't happen that often. Um, in periods of united government, it does happen from time to time. In fact, it's even happened during lame ducks. It's happened during lame ducks after the president nominating the person has lost re-election. Nine times that's happened. Uh, so uh, this, you know, it's pure. It's a purely political discussion. And so I haven't yet written this op-ed. Well, during the Merrick Garland, I was saying, uh, yeah, you know, what the Republicans are doing are justified. The voters seem to be confused. They reelected Obama in 2012 and gave the Republicans the Senate in 2014. So, yeah, uh, take this position that uh, let, let, let this election decide uh, who gets to make that nomination. And now you, you don't make a lot of money betting on the steel in the spines of Republican senators, but they're they held together. It's rather remarkable. Uh, now is a different scenario because the president and the Senate are aligned politically. And so, it's, I mean, it's, it's, again, a purely political calculation. If if there's a vacancy tomorrow, um, you know, should they nominate, should Mitch McConnell then, then try to push that through? Um, you know, go for it. What do they have to lose? The Democrats might pack the court regardless. If it happens in the lame duck, I don't know. You know, the consequences, you, know, you have to think about the political consequences. Um, there, there's going to be rioting in the streets regardless, uh, I think. Uh, so... But again, this is pure politics. This is not nothing. No maneuver would go against precedent. No maneuver would be illegal or unconstitutional. All the more reason for a diversionary invasion of Canada to distract from some of these issues. Why, joking, why, not, but, why not Greenland? Well, that that's step one. It's all part of this this process of encircling. Have, have you been playing too much risk, perhaps? <laughs> and I also I'm I'm fine with challenging Trudeau to a fight to settle the the land dispute as well. Um, okay, uh, let's plant the flag in. Um, uh, now I'm forgetting what you just. Oh oh, packing the court and come back to it. You you towards the end of your book, uh, you talk a lot about potential reforms to the court. Let's assume that Congress never uh, starts to jealously guard its its own authority and take back some of the authority that it's given away. In the absence of that, what are some options for the Supreme Court uh, to act more responsibly? Um, what like what what reforms of the court do you support personally? So ultimately, all these reform proposals uh, are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And because the Titanic is not the confirmation process, it's the ship of state. And so 
um, you know, we've, we've talked about you know why we have this dynamic and why it's fraught, and and so only when the court rebalances our order by our constitutional order by enforcing federalism and separation of powers are we going to decrease that temperature. But in terms of any of the reforms, I mean, packing the court is uh, it's possibly one of the only things, maybe the only thing I agree with Bernie Sanders on. You know, he was interviewed. I'm not going to do the accent, but he said, you know, you, you start packing the court in in 50 years, there are going to be 87 justices. This is insane. Um, and 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 that's right. Uh, and and historically, uh, the party that has packed the court or added justices, you know, they might get, gain some, you know, short, very short-term benefit, but long-term they they lose. It's not a uh, it's not a winning play long-term. Uh, there's some more exotic uh, court expansion or restructuring schemes, like well, what if there's 15 justices, but five are designated Republican, five are Democrat, and the other five have to be unanimously agreed upon by the partisan justices. Well, how does it depoliticize the court to have two thirds of the justices with explicitly partisan affiliations? I mean, that a little too clever by half. Um, term limits is the one that gets talked about uh, the most, uh, especially when there hasn't been turnover in the court's personnel in a while. Like uh, Justice Breyer, between 2000, uh, 1994 and 2005, Justice Breyer was the junior justice for 11 years. Um, it was just remarkable. And so a lot of uh, momentum for, for term limits. Um, the problem with that is it would take a constitutional amendment. Now, again, uh, because judges are supposed to serve during, during uh, uh, good uh, behavior, uh, some academics have proposed, well, we'll just make them senior justices and they retain all of their uh, you know, salaries and whatever else, and they can serve in lower courts. I'm like, well, you know, maybe, but that's not what the Constitution says. I mean, I, really, I think that's, the, again, it doesn't really work. Term limits, is the common thing would be 18 years, so there's a vacancy every two years during off year, so not during the year where there's a, a House or a presidential election. Um, you know, if people would like the court more or feel more confident in the court, if that were to happen, sure, let, let's, let's talk about that. But to be clear, that wouldn't really change the ideological mix of the court over time. You know, in the last 50 years, there have been 30 years of Republican presidents, 20 years of Democratic presidents. So if anything, liberal voices have been overrepresented uh, on the court. Uh, and if you do kind of like the, the game theory about who would be on the court now, it would be two uh, George W. Bush, uh, sorry, uh, I think it's two, three George W. Bush appointees, no, four George W. Bush appointees, three Ob four Obama and two Trumpers. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's the, the balance would be roughly the same. Um, so, uh, people wouldn't even be younger because if you're only having 18 year terms, then, then folks in their sixties would start being, uh, eligible again. But that's the only one term limits that I guess I mildly support. Steve Calabresi, one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society has a voluminous, exhaustive article about this in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy that, that convinced me. Uh, but again, it would take a constitutional amendment and it wouldn't change how the court actually rules. So there you go. So it sounds like. You're you're basically saying that Article One needs to get its act together, and there's nothing that the third branch of government can do on its own to fix some of our bigger problems. That's right. I blame you, Mike. Uh, you, you personally you. are no. Um, all the branches are to blame. Uh, Article Three absolutely can start ruling in better ways to uh, hold Congress's feet to the fire, to hold the executive branch agencies' feet to the fire. Um, sending back more power to the, the states and localities. Um, the you know Congress can legislate more clearly. Um, 
and and the executive can uh, you know stop using creative ways of expanding its own power of you know employing this idea of when Congress doesn't act well you know I will um, with the pen and the phone and the and the tweet and what have you. I did used to do this thing where whenever I was speaking to a conservative group, Politico had this ongoing series that was like a hundred things Trump did while you weren't looking, and I'd read it at like and you know for conservative audience they'd be like oh yeah awesome because it's all stuff we liked. But I tried to make the subversive point that this should anger you because anything done through executive order yeah. is inherently impermanent and will be undone by a pen and a phone the next time uh, someone else comes in that we don't like. But I'm not sure I made that argument that effectively. Un unless it's immigration reform and, and uh, John Roberts is the deciding vote, I guess. <laughs> in, in that DACA case, by the way, I filed a brief uh, which got me some notoriety. On the cover, it says supporting DACA is a matter of policy and the government as a matter of law. Uh, and people were very confused. What do you mean your policy preferences diverge from your legal analysis? How can that be possible? Process matters. Uh, this is this is not nom, this is bowling, there are rules. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so we have about 13 minutes left. I need five of those to talk about lowbrow uh, Netflix things. Um, I want to give you a choose your own adventure. Uh, we can either have you analyze in real time the list that uh, Trump just put out, or we can talk about your your weed article in National Affairs, or we can talk about Citizens United. You you get to choose one of those three paths. Weed, Citizens United, and what was the other one? You can analyze in real time the Trump list that just came out. Apparently it hasn't come out. There's going to be an announcement at a, at some time. I, okay. Uh, so I guess that's that's off the table. But I do have an article uh, a few weeks ago I put out about these are the people that Trump needs to add to his list, and it's basically the 14 people from the previous 25 person list who are under 55, plus 11 new ones who are basically uh, uh, Trump appointed lower court judges who are phenomenal, uh, and uh, and three academics as a, as a wild card. But anyway, we'll see who he actually picks. Um, so, so um, um, I don't know. Yeah, he's going to make, make the, the final, 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 final three. three. Who do you think it's going to be? Um, well, it's it, the thing is, if it's for the Ginsburg seat, then it's going to be a woman. But if it's not the Ginsburg seat, then it can be anyone. So the list has to be long, comprehensive enough uh, to include all that. If, so for the Ginsburg seat, I think the final three would be Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit, uh, Naomi Rao of the D.C. Circuit, and I'll say... Uh, I'll say Joan Larson of the of the Sixth Circuit. Interesting. Um, I don't. Play. If, if if it's someone else, uh, then Amul Thapar, who's on the uh, on the Sixth Circuit and is a favorite. He was the first circuit judge appointed by Trump, and he's a uh, a big uh, 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 supporter. Or, or Mitch McConnell is is his big uh, patron, so he'll be uh, very competitive. Okay, well then I'm having covered that in a short period of time. I'm going to ask you about your marijuana article, okay. uh, and I just want to read the first paragraph because I think this is a beautiful bit of writing, and I'm obsessed with teaching kids how to write because I think it's very important. I think it's why Scalia was so effective and renowned because he wrote in a way that was both understandable and fun, and and this is that. So this is your hopefully you're picking a paragraph that I actually wrote rather than Yuval Levin, Levin rewriting. Well, either way, you should take credit for it. It's the opening <laughs> paragraph. You said, can okay. something okay. be legal and illegal at the same time? That may sound impossible, but has increasingly become reality for cannabis in the United States. As more and more states legalize marijuana while Congress stands pat and the executive branch works out enforcement complexities, 
people across the country are asking themselves, what is this magical Schrodinger's weed? That's a great framing. Um, all right, so you and you sort of tee up this massive contradiction we have where weed is legal in a lot of states, but it's illegal at the federal level. And uh, maybe tell tell us how we should think about this from a constitutional perspective. Sure. Um, so I basically give a, a a survey of constitutional law as it's been warped by the drug war. And my point isn't to advocate any particular kind of marijuana or broader drug uh, policy, although you can tell my sympathies from this article. It's the process point. It's about how in our zeal to uh, persecute the prosecute the drug war, we've warped everything from the Commerce Clause, the Rach versus Gonzalez case in 2005 that allows the federal government now to regulate or prohibit a plant that you grow in your own backyard for your own consumption to the Fourth Amendment, because whenever we you know, hear about cops knocking down doors and no knock raids and stop and frisk and stuff, it's one of two things. It's guns or drugs um, to a whole host of other uh, uh, parts of either the Bill of Rights or or government powers. And I kind of go through the Constitution and like show how the drug war has led to an expansion uh, of federal and executive power uh, in these areas, as well as violating our, our individual rights. It's it's quite stunning. And I think re- regardless of uh, what you think about uh, what marijuana or broader drug policy should be, uh, I mean, the way that it's affected, you know, whatever your pet issue might be, whether it's foreign policy or race relations, there's an aspect of it that's been touched by the drug war. Well, so if I agree with those arguments, wouldn't the logical thing to do uh, would be to say, okay, we should decriminalize it at the federal level and then allow states to determine how they want to deal with it. Sure. Um, and I would support the uh, that that it would remain illegal in Wisconsin because I think weed makes you stupid and lazy. Uh, is that a defensible intellectual position? I think it is. I mean, I, again, as long as you're then not using the police to search everybody just in case they might have weed uh, or come of some of the uh, protectual reasons to for probable cause. I mean, uh, some of these things for uh, drug courier profiles in the uh, FBI, and this has been adopted by various um, uh, uh, police forces around the country. So uh, listen to this. Here are traits that uh, fit a drug courier profile. Appearing nervous, making phone calls shortly after arriving, having little or no luggage, having a significant amount of luggage, using public transit, paying cash for a ticket, uh, also departing the plane first, departing the plane last, departing the place in the mi- the plane in the middle, uh, steering with your hands at uh, two and ten, steering with your hands at three and nine. I mean, it's just r- remarkable uh, uh, what what uh, that brings to mind the, uh, the Smithsonian analysis of like things that are like white privilege. It's like the scientific yes. method, you know. <laughs> Not like uh, I mean, jaywalking. It's, it's, yeah, like so. So you quoted a paragraph from the very beginning. I'll quote you a paragraph from the very end. This is not the very last paragraph, but uh, here's my conclusion: the war on drugs has been fought largely with laws that were beyond Congress's powers to enact. Although it took a constitutional amendment to allow Congress to prohibit alcohol nationwide, the prohibition of now illicit substances under the Controlled Substances Act took place without any such amendment. This is perhaps mainly a commentary on the Supreme Court's expansive reading of the Commerce Clause but it should give pause to anyone who takes the Constitution seriously. Well put. Um, and freely available online. You don't even need to subscribe to National Affairs to get it. I shouldn't say that. Yuval would be 
mad at me. <laughs> uh, but such is life. Okay, in the in the minutes we have remaining here, uh, so first of all, people can go. Uh, your your book can be ordered on Amazon right now. Right correct? there, I mean, there is a dedicated web- website, supremedisorder.com. But yeah, if you look up my name, uh, Ilya Shapiro, the book's title, Supreme Disorder, on Amazon, you can find it there. And I tell you what, if uh, I'll make this offer to your listeners, if uh, you uh, order it. It's, it comes out officially in two weeks, but you can pre-order it. And you send me that proof of purchase and your address. I'm happy to send a signed uh, book plate that you can stick in since I won't be visiting a, a bookstore near you anytime soon. Well, I have tens of listeners on this podcast, and so my mom will probably buy it and, and send it to you. So <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, you've, you've sold one book probably. I'm not allowed <laughs> to advocate the buying of this book. I'm just merely pointing out that it is available on Amazon, and it's a very good book. So whatever ethics people that I've done my due diligence. Um, okay. In the time we have remaining, um, obviously you're, you're impressing us with the, the many leather bound books on your bookshelf. Do you, uh, do you make time to read fiction or is it all boring legal briefs and, <laughs> you know, SCOTUS blog this and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I read, uh, well, legal thrillers, of course, John Grisham. Well, not just that. I, I, I read a lot of different uh, things. I, I try to always have uh, something in current affairs on the go, something historical, and then some fiction. Now, don't put me on the spot by asking me what I'm reading that's fiction now. I don't know because I can only remember the very last thing I looked at, which right now is my own book in your face. So, um, But I, I, I do try to read fiction I feel like eventually I'll want to write some fiction, but I feel I don't know enough about the world yet to make that happen. You could do like a legal thriller, though. That's uh, you could tell the tale of a, a young congressman struggling to to reclaim Article One authority from the evil uh, careerists. I'm just throwing it out there as a potential okay. Okay. and invade Canada as a means of revitalizing Manifest Destiny. Using right? his CIA training, right? That's that's right. That's right. Um, Okay, what about even lower brow addictions? I mean, in the pandemic, we've all been forced to watch I mean, Tiger I, King. I, I've watched Tiger King. Uh, okay. what, what my wife and I are watching now is Cobra Kai, you know, the uh, the latter day expansion of the Karate Kid universe. We we think it's entertaining and, and well done. And try to convince my wife to watch this with me. I think the premise is brilliant. I think she might be too young because for me it's all this 80s nostalgia that's just fantastic. But I think the characters don't take themselves too seriously, which I always appreciate. And it's always these tropes. And it's also these like vicious karate kicks to the head that apparently like don't hurt anybody. So it's this cartoon violence. So, yeah, it's it's good. And my wife is not into, you know, violence cartoon or otherwise or martial arts or what have you. And she's I think she's more a fan of it than I am, frankly. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. The whole premise is that the bad guy in the original Karate Kid, like it's he's the main character in this one, and I sort of got the vibe that the subtext was going to be he's teaching kids to be like more hardcore in a in a world that like no longer values those virtues. That's right. They're they're soft and pushovers and you know the quote unquote losers in their high school, and they all flock to the Cobra Kai dojo to to learn uh, you know strike first, no mercy, all that sort of thing. But yeah, so he's uh, you know in his fifties and uh, uh, is kind of down and out, just lost his job, and he's you know, resurrecting his life. And then uh, Daniel, who you know won, was the Karate Kid, and and and. Uh, and won that tournament is now uh, the used car salesman king of uh, uh, Southern California. It's, California. It's, yeah. Speaking yeah. of 80s nostalgia, do you have strong thoughts on the Top Gun sequel that should be coming out soon? 
I think it's a travesty that they changed the flags on the on the flight jacket to soothe the Chinese censors. But uh, I'm going to watch the movie. I'm a big Top Gun fan. I'm possibly a bigger fan of the Top Gun soundtrack. I mean, I thought the music was fantastic. Hold and, on. Uh, you know, I, I have a, you know, my, my drug war article, uh, notwithstanding, I have a need, uh, a need for speed. <laughs> Well played. Uh, it's even worse, though, if you look at the flags on Maverick's bomber jack or whatever it is, they like they took the Japanese flag and they turned the circle into a triangle in the middle. And then on the Taiwan flag, they just kept the colors and rearranged the, the shape. Yeah. So it's yeah. all nonsensical. OK, uh, who are your this is my penultimate question. Who are kind of your uh, legal like mentors like who 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 do you model your yourself after uh randy barnett uh who's a georgetown law professor the godfather of the challenge to obamacare richard epstein whom i had at, at the university of chicago law school for property corporations and roman law and he's just this uh, eminence grease of the libertarian uh, legal movement a uh, remarkable uh, individual and uh and roger Pollan, who hired me into cato uh and has not published uh, as many books as, as these other gentlemen, but uh, has certainly, uh, within uh, Washington legal policy circles, uh, made uh, a big uh, a big implant. Well, I actually lied. This is my penultimate question. What percentage of bills that Congress passes into law do you think are actually, based on a, a fair reading of the Constitution, unconstitutional? Um, I think probably you sh- if you're rounding down zero – Zero are actually constitutional. That's right. Okay. Well, I mean, naming post offices. I mean, these days Congress doesn't does much doesn't do much other than right pass uh, continuing resolutions and name post offices. So the the naming the post offices is, is constitutional. You'll support that one. Okay. Okay. Final. That's question. actually an enumerated power over post offices and postal roads. So. Um. This is true. Um. But there's a lot of misinformation surrounding the post office, as you may have heard recently. Um. Okay, final question for Ilya Shapiro, uh, author of Supreme Disorder, available on Amazon, uh, wherever books are sold. Um, let's say you come to Green Bay, Wisconsin, because um, you need to exercise yourself of your Broncos past. You come to the Mecca of football, and we're having a beer in the shadow of Lambeau Field, and a young Wisconsinite comes up to you and says, Mr. Shapiro, I heard you on the New Look podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work. I read your book, and it has inspired me to go to law school. And I really want a career like yours as a a legal scholar, a constitutional scholar. What advice would you have for that young Wisconsinite? Well, it's kind of like when someone approaches you and wants to convert to Judaism. You know, you say no several times. And then finally, you're like, okay, if you're persistent enough, let's talk about whether you have the right reasons for doing this. Uh, because going to law school, you know, most lawyers are miserable uh, or not fulfilled, uh, or they go to law school and become lawyers as a default because they don't know what to do with their life. Uh, also, there are very few jobs as constitutional lawyers. So, you know, chances are you'll end up doing something else. And again, will be miserable and, and unfulfilled. Uh, so it's it's also a credentials game. So if you don't have you know the top grades at the top schools or you know it's 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 just tough to to break into uh, that sort of thing. There are definitely more opportunities now than when I was graduating law school what 17 years ago because there are state-based think tanks, uh, including in Wisconsin, that have legal uh, uh, organizations, legal arms, 
Um, and, and especially you can get internships and, you know, eventually maybe even create a, a position for yourself. More donors are doing this these days. Um, but really it's just, um, you know, get good grades, read a lot of books, get good grades in law school, uh, clerk, clerking is very important. So you learn how the, how the uh, judiciary actually works, um, and, uh, create your own luck, um, uh, become expert on something that, um, you know, something that nobody else is, uh, get your name out there by writing, by doing, um, you know, there are now these young voices organizations that you can join and start making a media clips file as well. Um, you know, you have to be entrepreneurial in your career and you have to be the owner of your career. Nobody's going to lay out, you know, it's very easy to become, uh, uh, go to a law firm or go to a prosecutor's office or something like that. Lots of those kinds of jobs. But if you really want to be an idea entrepreneur, which is how I characterize my job, you know, at the, at the intersection of the legal, political, academic, and media worlds, you really have to, um, uh, be innovative and, and figure out where not just, uh, substantively what you want to, uh, write about or talk about, become expert in, but, uh, where the opportunities are. Great advice from Ilya Shapiro, the once and future legal viceroy of the Concord Territories of Canada. Uh, Ilya, thanks for taking some time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, and I hope your, your tens of listeners have, have enjoyed this. It's, uh, they certainly have.